You are listening to audio from the Creek Church. If you would like more information about the Creek, please be sure to visit our website at thecreekfw.com. There's a lot of great things going on. If you don't know anybody um, at the Creek on Halloween, we've got some of these boo parties or bashes as we call them. And uh, so we've got information that you can pick up and go to one of their neighbor, uh, go to one of your neighbors. Um, if you want to host one, I think we have 20 people hosting these, um, which is awesome. Thank you. And uh, so get involved with that. Um, get out and know your neighbors. Get to know the people that you live next door to and live on your street. You never know who you might discover lives on your street. Um, and so that's a great opportunity to get connected just in your community, really. And then uh, uh, when I was gone, I saw, I got some pictures of this, but our, our kids and Creek Kids um, do a thing every, every month called Creek Kids Day, and they serve. And, and this last one, uh, we had the kids come in and pack boxes for deployed military. And we had one of our, our uh, Air Force pilots come in, Aubrey Venable, and uh, talk to them about what it's like being deployed and what it's like receiving one of these boxes while you're deployed. And so they got to pack boxes and get them sent off so the soldiers will get them in time for Christmas. They packed 35 boxes, and I think they said they had another, uh, they had enough supplies to do another 35 boxes. So that's your kids at work. And um, your, your kids are holier than I am, man. Um, and uh, uh, yeah, when I was that age, I cared about cartoons and uh, Cocoa Puffs. So uh, thank you for your, getting your kids here because I know you have to get up and drive them here and, and do all of that. So thank you for being a chauffeur. Thank you for getting them here. And thank you for helping them get invested in the lives of other people and serving other people. Uh, we've been in a series uh, that Alec kicked off. Alec did a great job last two weeks, man. I'm proud of that kid. Um, and he's a good, he's a good boy. And uh, I think we'll keep him around for a little while longer. Um, but he started this series back in Luke. And so if you got your Bibles, go to Luke chapter 9. If you don't have a Bible, we keep some on the back cabinets for you. If you don't own one, then, then write your name in it. That's our gift to you. And uh, this series called Out of the Crowd really starts a shift in the, the life of Jesus and his ministry. Because through the series we've been doing, and when we see Jesus, a lot of times he is preaching to crowds and there's great crowds around him and, and things are happening. And we're starting to see a shift in his ministry where he's going to spend less time ministering to the crowds and more time pouring into the disciples because he knows the mission and the purpose that he's going to entrust the disciples after his crucifixion and resurrection. And we see him starting to pull out of the crowd a little bit and really make this investment. And this, this passage we're going to go through today, this scene is really an interesting one. It almost feels a little bit sci-fi-ish. When, you, when you're reading scripture, you get to this point and you're going, what is going on here? It's called the transfiguration. And what transfiguration literally means is metamorphosis. The best way you can explain that is a caterpillar going into the cocoon and coming out a butterfly. And what you see in this mountaintop experience, this transfiguration with Jesus, is, is a preview and a glimpse of the glory that is held in his humanity. So you have Jesus who is fully human and fully God. That, that in Colossians 1, it tells us that in him, in Christ, in Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. So what you have on this mountain and this experience is, is that veil being pulled back a little bit to reveal that glory. 
and, and you have Peter, James, and John with them. And, and so we'll start verse 38, or uh, I think it's 26, and we'll go to 38. 28 through 36 is what it is. Um, now about eight days after these sayings, he took Peter and John and James and went up to the mountain to pray. So Jesus takes them up eight days later. What are these sayings? It's, this is about six days after Peter's confession of Christ, where um, Peter said, you are my Lord and my God that you are who you say you are. You are the Messiah. You are my Savior. It's eight days after the Feast of Tabernacles, which was, was a celebration that, that was in remembrance of the nation of Israel coming through the wilderness, and uh, they built tabernacles for the presence of God. So eight days after this, they, they go up on the mountain to pray, and as Jesus was praying, the appearance of his face was altered, and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory. They saw the glory of Jesus and the two men who stood with him. And as the men were parting from him, parting from Jesus, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. Peter always has something to say. Peter always will just kind of spout out, and and it's one of those things where you say something, you go, did I just say that out loud? And there's a lot of times Heather will say, yes, you just said that out loud. Um, And there are things I say from the platform that I'm like, I wish I could take back. My staff never lets me live those down. It seems like every time we get together for a planning meeting or a retreat or some kind of party to celebrate something, it always come up. Hey, let's talk about the stupid things Matt has said in the past. Um, I think they're keeping some kind of archive. And uh, I, I try to scrub the recordings. Brandon is loyal to me in the tech booth and he'll scrub the recordings but I can't say anything stupid in this service because it goes out live. And so we, that's there. But then my team, they just constantly remind me. Hey, remember that time you said, hey, you remember that time I said you're fired? No, I'm just kidding. I wouldn't do that. <laughs> I love my team. I have a great team. They're awesome. Anyway, so P, uh, Peter makes this statement, not knowing what he said. And as, as Peter was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them. And they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my son, my chosen one, listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone and they kept silent and told no one in those days anything of what they had seen. So you've got a really interesting scene playing out um, in, in, in this context of, in passage of scripture. And you've got, um, you've got a lot happening that I want to kind of unpack, um, when you start going through this, you see that Jesus is praying and you see the, this revelation of his glory. You see this, this peeling back of his humanity and you've got Moses and Elijah that show up. And this is a beautiful thing because it makes a connection between the Old Testament and the New Testament because you have Moses in the fulfillment of the law, Elijah in the fulfillment of the prophets, and then you've got the Messiah that the law and the prophets all pointed to standing there. And you've got... This, this thing happening. And a lot of people think that somewhere between the Old Testament and the New Testament, God changed. That, you know, well, the God of the Old Testament is he kills everybody. And then the New Testament, he's love. The character of God has never changed. The character of God has always been of love and been in love with us and willing to do what needs to be done to redeem us. The, the, 
you see the, the evidences of the plan of salvation really before the foundation of the world because Jesus has said he is the lamb who was slain before the foundation of the world. You see that plan starting to play out even in Genesis 3 after the fall. That when God killed the animals to cover the nakedness of Adam and Eve, you see God already stepping in for some redemption of humanity. And what you have happening in this scene is that Moses is there and Elijah's there and they're having this conversation. And, and can you, here's just where I, where I think it's what would be cool about getting to witness that conversation and be a part of that experience. There's a lot of times that, that, that we pray and we're, we're kind of pressing with God and we're kind of working towards God and we're trying to do what God has called us to do and yet we don't see results. And we start to think the results are our responsibility and we forget and we lose fat, sight of the fact that the results are up to God. We're called to be faithful. And, and Moses is having this conversation with Jesus like, man, I, I didn't think I was the guy. I told God you got the wrong guy. But it's amazing, Jesus, that God used me to lead these people out of captivity in Egypt and out of bondage and then gave the law to the people through me that points towards you. Because the law is a foreshadow of the one to come. And it's interesting because Jesus brings grace through the law. He said, I didn't come to abolish the law. I came to fulfill it. The best way I can describe this uh, issue of law and the grace is if you've grown up in church and experienced legalism, you know how exhausting that can be. And if you grew up in church and experienced that, thank you for coming back. Because we get exhausted trying to follow this list of rules to somehow earn God's favor and earn God's love. We think if we can behave the right way, that God will love us. And then Jesus comes in with grace and changes everything. When I was young, I grew up on a farm and, and we had an electric fence around our yard. And the electric fence was, was too tall for me to step over as a kid. And what would happen is when I would follow my father to the barn, he would step over the fence. He would turn around and put his foot on the fence and push it down to the ground so I could step over it. A lot of times, that's what we, we think that's what grace is. That grace will somehow lower the fence or lower the bar for us to step over it. And that's not what grace is all about. Grace doesn't lower the bar for us. Grace what grace does would be my father crossing the fence and instead of lowering the fence for me, he turns around, picks me up and lifts me over the fence. Grace doesn't change the commands of God. Grace doesn't change our pursuit of a holy life. What grace does is it lifts us over the requirements of the law so that the law can be fulfilled in us. So that this loving my neighbor and loving God with everything I've got, grace is what motivates that. I can't legislate this love. And Moses is having this conversation with Jesus about it. Come in. Jesus, you, you're here to go to the cross to lift everybody over the law, to fulfill this law in our life. In verse 31, it says they were talking of his departure the, the Greek word for that is exodus. Moses knows something about the exodus. 
that Moses could sit there and say, God let me lead the nation of Israel out of bondage and captivity of Egypt, but Jesus, you're gonna lead the greatest exodus in eternal history. You're gonna lead people out of the bondage of sin and death. Jesus is a fulfillment of the law, and you've got Moses there as a representation of it. You've got Elijah there, who was the first prophet in the prophetic age, of saying all of the things that that God gave me to speak about pointed to you, Jesus. And even when I couldn't see it happening, I get to stand here and have this conversation with you and everything that was pointed to, everything in the Old Testament points to Jesus points to our need for a savior, our need for a Messiah, and the fulfillment of him coming on the scene. Incredible thing happened. And then you got the, the, the apostles, they wake up and they see what's going on. And Peter says, you know, we need to build, I need to build a tent. I need to build a tabernacle for each of you so we can, it's good that I'm here. You're lucky I'm here, Jesus, because I can build these things. All of this is an attempt. We want to build these tents so that we can stay in this experience. When we are in church and when we're pursuing God, we'll have these mountaintop experiences. We're like, if I could just stay here, my faith would never waver. If I could just stay here, I'd never deal with anxiety. I'd never deal with stress. I'd never deal with all of the problems and the junk that goes on in life. If I could just stay here and and our life isn't designed just to stay on the mountaintop. And Peter says, I just want to stay in this moment and keep this. Let's keep reproducing this. The problem is when we start trying to reproduce revelation, it becomes emotionalism and it becomes something we can't sustain. And then this cloud shows up And the apostles would have known what this cloud is because when Moses is leading the people out of Egypt, God led the nation in a cloud by day and fire by night. This presence of God led the people and this presence of God envelops them. So what they're seeing is they wake up and they see this glory of Christ. They see this glory of Jesus that as humanity's been peeled back, he's conversing with Moses representing the law, and Elijah representing the prophets and the fulfillment of all of this. They wake up, they experience that. Peter says, let's stay here, let's do this. And then a cloud envelops them. The presence of God envelops them and begins to speak. He said, this is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. The things you're going to experience with him in these days and weeks and months to come are going to be what sustains you in the life he's called you to. These mountaintop experiences sustain us in the valley. These mountaintop experiences give us a preview of what we're really looking forward to in eternity and in in life. On this mountaintop, when you've got this, this thing happening with Jesus, this is a preview of the glory that he will receive after the cross. Because Jesus knows his purpose. After this mountaintop experience, he's going to do everything he can to invest in the disciples and prepare them for ministry. Then he's going to go to the cross. He's going to be laid in a borrowed tomb. He's going to be called from that tomb on the third day. He's going to spend 40 days on earth. And then he's going to be ascended to the right hand of the Father. He knows this glory that he's experiencing in this prayer time. He's going to get the fullness of when his purpose is fulfilled. 
And we see this this preview of, of the glory of Christ even before the cross. This is also a preview of that, that second coming of Christ, that, that we believe Jesus is our Messiah. We believe that he's coming again for us. And what you've got represented on this mountaintop is you've got the apostles who represent those who are alive who will see the glory of Jesus when he returns. You've got Moses. Moses died. There's debate about where his bones were buried. There was arguments in scripture, but Moses died. And Moses represents those who are dead in Christ, who will be resurrected when Jesus returns in his glory. And then you've got Elijah, who represents this this church that will be raptured. Elijah never experienced death. He went the way I want to go. God just sent the Uber of heaven to pick him up. Or as Alex said last week, what was it, the heavenly Hoover, the Hoover of heaven, which I got to do a little theological correction. God wouldn't use a Hoover. He would use a Dyson. It's more powerful. And then he would cast out the dirt devil. I didn't have a voice last week. I waited a week to say that. I didn't take that to Facebook or Twitter. I took that. I wanted that live because I needed to see your reaction. But that's the way I want to go. I mean, if you're like, I just read, I want to die in my sleep. No, I just want God to show up and say, let's go. I don't want to experience death. I don't experience any of that. So Elijah represents it. So we've got a preview of this, the second coming of Christ. And, and, and then it says that, that they didn't talk about it. That strikes me as weird. Why didn't you talk about it? You just saw an incredible thing happen. You experienced the glory of God. You experienced this revelation for yourself and you didn't talk about it. Later, Peter wrote about it. He wrote about it in, in 2 Peter chapter 1, uh, starting verse uh, 16. This is what he said. This is years later. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. He says, I was there. I saw it. I said something stupid after it, but I saw it. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was born to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention to as a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing that this, first of all, that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. What's, going, what's he saying here? What Peter is saying is, 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 I was there on the mountaintop. I heard the voice of God. I saw him in his glory. And this, this prophecy, this prophetic word that happened, this prophetic means revelation, this revelation that I experienced, you would do well to pay attention to me because this is a lamp lighting it up for your heart until you receive it yourself. He said this prophecy, he goes on to say, prophecy was never, uh, um, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the spirit. He's saying, this isn't my interpretation of the revelation of God. This is the revelation of God. 
And he's saying, you'll do well to listen to me until you experience it. Because revelation has to be experienced, not just witnessed. This last summer, I got to spend time on a mountaintop in Colorado. And we'd spent three days hiking. And I've got pictures that I could show you where our hike led us to over 11,000 square feet. I'm thinking house. 11,000 feet of elevation. And I'm sitting on this ledge and I've got my, my phone, I'm snapping pictures. I put the pictures down, I'm just in awe of what my experience is. What I'm, in, I'm sitting on this mountaintop. There, there's water around me and there's the, the, this lake that looks like glass that's producing this waterfall and then thousands of feet drop into a valley. I'm sitting there, I'm just like, God, this is incredible. Your creation is amazing. And I just felt God remind me of something he shared with me two years ago in Colorado. He said, this is just my footstool. I'm like, I can't wait to see the chair. I'm sitting there and I can tell you how beautiful that experience was. I could put a picture up on this screen and you'll look at that and you go, eh. Because all you're doing is you're witnessing what I experienced. I'm trying to show you a picture and describe it, and I can't give you a description of what the air felt like and smelled like and what that exhilarating feeling of being that elevation and looking down and seeing creation and just how it spreads across. And you look at a picture and go, yeah, that's cool. But you've got to experience it. See, I would rather take you to the mountaintop than show you a picture of it. Because when you experience it, it's a different experience. It's a whole different thing that's going on in our life. Same thing with our faith. We're called to be witnesses, and I can explain to you. I can be witnesses about what God's doing in my life, and you look at it and go, well, because you don't understand the depth. You're not getting the full picture. You're not getting the experience. And we all want these mountaintop experiences, but we don't know how to get there. We don't know how to experience this revelation. A lot of us get frustrated with God because we're like, why aren't you speaking to me? Why aren't you showing me anything? I mean, God, if you really desire to make yourself known and you really desire to have this relationship with me, why aren't you showing me anything? And I've got some questions for you to filter through in this. Are you in a position to experience revelation? I mean, think about it. Peter, James, and John, positionally in a position, in a place to experience revelation. They were with Jesus on the mountain. There's 12 apostles. These three were willing to draw closer into Jesus, had fully submitted. I mean, you are the Messiah. You are who you say you are. Pour into me. Positionally, they're in a, a place that they can experience this. You know, when I was going through this teaching and going through this message, and I started thinking about that, that layers of friendship and levels of relationship, and, and there's, there's one graphic that has three concentric circles. It's like a bullseye, and, and I was reading about how we view those levels of relationship and friendship in our life, and by the way... Um, the friends on your Facebook didn't qualify for any of these circles. 
most of us don't know enough about the people that we're friends with on Facebook to really know that it, we see the pictures of the vacations that we're jealous of. We see the glimpses of, of the good stuff that's going on in their life. But this, this broke it down into three areas that this outer circle you have as acquaintances. Those are people you know, not people you're gonna share anything with or reveal anything. Those aren't people you go to dinner with. Those are just acquaintances. Those are the people that, that when you get invited to an event and you think you go by yourself and you see somebody, you're glad they're there. I mean, I, I get invited to these meetings and everything, and one of the things that I can't stand doing is going to, this, going to events by myself and walking in and having to mingle. Oh, uh, you might as well just pull my toenails out. You know, but I, I, I walked into one meeting one time, and I saw somebody. I was like, I don't know them, but I know them. They're an acquaintance. So I was like, you're my bestie right now. <laughs> Let's get through this together, man. But those are just acquaintances. And then the next layer in is casual relationships. You're like, you're like I'll share a little bit with you, but, but man, you, you don't have the right to speak the hard stuff into my life, and I'm not gonna step in to speak hard stuff in your life. And we, we may go to dinner every once in a while, but it, our, our, it's a surface-level relationship. And then you've got the core, and those are the close relationships, those are the people that, that when I would call at 2 a.m. and say, I need you, they say, I'm on my way before they ask what's going on. Those are the people that have the right and have earned the place in my life and I've earned the place in their life to say some really difficult things and to receive some really difficult things from that those are, the, those are the guys that are watching my six. They see my blind spots and they say, Matt, I, you really need to check up on this. And I'm willing to listen to them because we've been, we've been through the fire together. My wife has that place that she can say the difficult things and I know that it's coming from a heart of love. And we, we get into this circle of relationships and we wonder, I wonder, where is God in that? Let me take you back to elementary school for a minute. You know when you would say, I like you, do you like me? Check yes or no. Um, let's say I'm writing you a note. Will you be my friend? Check yes or no. I want you to be my best friend, my closest friend. But then, you know, and most people get it backwards. They'll date for a little while. And then they have the defining the relationship talk. You know, I believe in having that before you start dating. So let's say um, I, I'm asking you to be my friend, but I'm gonna define the relationship before I, you, you answer. But I give you the disclaimer on our friendship. I only want you in my inner circle and in that close circle when I invite you in. The only time you can come unannounced into my inner circle is when you have something really good to give me. I don't even care that you're an acquaintance unless I want something from you. And, and when I see you on Facebook and doing, you're taking somebody on a vacation with you, you need to be doing that for me. But I only want it on my terms. 
You operate the way I tell you to operate, and that's how our friendship works. You're going to check no, and you're probably going to write something back on that. That's not a relationship. That's abuse. And we wonder why we're not in a position with God to experience revelation because many of us say, God, I only want you involved in my life when I invite you in. And the only time you can come into my space without my invitation is when you have something really good that you're gonna give me. And God, I want this relationship on my terms. And God says, and you want me to reveal to you my plan, my glory, my majesty? And you, want a, you don't want a relationship. You want a cosmic vending machine. Are you in a position? Where's your position with God? Where does God fit in to your circle? Because the only way we get that, see, see, we see Jesus' transfiguration and that glory, and God wants to reveal that glory in us. He wants us to have a transfiguration, a metamorphosis, and that only happens through a relationship with Christ. Positionally, where are you with God? The, ne- the next question, the other filter is, are you in a posture to experience revelation? And there, there's a difference here because you, Peter, James, and John were positionally close to Jesus, but they were asleep. Jesus was praying, the apostles were sleeping. That was their posture. They woke up and then got to experience this revelation of Jesus on the mountain. But what's, what's your posture? What, what that really means is what's your attitude towards God? Because I can be close to somebody and still have an attitude about him. Heather knows me better than any human on this planet She has the right to say some difficult things and she exercises that right. (laughs) As every wife does and as every husband does. But there are times that I might not agree with her assessment and positionally it doesn't change where I'm at with my wife, but my posture begins to change. Oh, really? Well, let's talk about you, sweetheart. (laughs) I better turn this around to redemptive because y'all gonna tell on me. Uh, I'll just share with you an experience with God. In the last couple months, I felt, I felt close to God. I felt, you know, I was like, I felt like I was, I could fall into legalism easily because I felt like I was doing the list well, man. My prayer time was going good. Bible read, I was in the Bible, man. I was, I mean, it was just good stuff and I just, you know, I, I just felt like God was just moving along and I was just feeling the peace of God. And then, you know, I'm like, God, just, I want to, I want to hear you. I want to experience you. I want you to speak to me. I'm ready. I'm listening. And God shared something with me. And I went from God speak to me to like, Oh no, who's that for? <laughs> like, okay, God, I am a pastor and a preacher of your word. And I understand what you just said. So who is that for? Is there a lot of people in the church dealing with that God, so I need to preach that? What person is it in the church, God, so I need to go maybe take them to coffee and have a one-on-one and say, you got a problem? I begin to fold this arms and go, that's not me. That's not me. I'm not 
I'll lay it out. I'm not carrying any unforgiveness or bitterness in my heart, God. And I begin to fold my arms. My posture changes with God. My attitude changes with God because he's bringing me a rebuke because it's hindering the revelation of his glory in my life. When God speaks to you, when you feel God revealing something in your life, how does your attitude change? Because that's going to hinder that. And I can talk about getting in a position and a posture to experience the revelation of God, but, but how do you do that? I mean, how, how do you get functional with that? What does that practically look like? And, and I wrestle with that. And James wrote in chapter four, is James chapter four, he starts out, he says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. So what's happening is positionally there's, there's a change happening. That, that when I set in my heart that I'm gonna draw near to you, God, that I positionally wanna change where I'm at with you, God says, I'm already moving too. That when you step, I'm stepping. That when you draw near to me, when you position yourself close to me, I'm positioning myself closer to you. And then from a posture that he begins to teach us, this is a hard passage. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. That sounds real positive, doesn't it? That's the posture I want. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. What he's saying is that positionally, when you draw near to me, I'm gonna draw near to you, but your posture has to change because a lot of times we get prideful. I don't have a problem, God. You're seeing this wrong. which is ironic. If you've, if you've ever said that to God, I have said that to God. I say stupid things sometimes. Or we get in this, pride, this position like, God, I, that ain't me. I don't have an addiction. I can say no anytime. I can stop this anytime. It does not control me. I control it. That's like telling God, hey, God, I'm gonna keep this demon, but I'm gonna cage it up and I'm gonna take it out when I wanna take it out. It's like having a mean dog. I don't have a problem, God. What he's saying is, realize your hands are dirty. Cleanse your hands. Confession, repentance. Confession is, God, I agree that this is on my hands. And I'm repenting. I'm asking you to change this. When he says, be wretched and mourn, let your joy turn to weeping. What he's saying is, is instead of this pride that you well up with, humble yourself and realize the state of what's on our hands and what that does to the heart of God. That when instead of me saying, I don't have an issue, God, but when I realize and I look at it and I honestly look at it and say, what I have is breaking your heart. And when your heart breaks, my heart breaks. 
That God, when you, when you hurt for the decisions that I'm making, then God, I want to, I want to hurt because of those decisions, because I want to posture myself and humble myself before you so that I can receive your mercy and I can receive your grace and receive your revelation. I've been studying through the Psalms in my personal time. And one of my favorite Psalms is Psalms 51. And this is, this is David, the man after God's own heart, after he gets um, caught in adultery that led to murder by Nathan, a prophet of God that God sent to David and said, David, let me tell you a story. And David said, that's a wretched man. And Nathan said, David, that's you. And David's position had changed with God from a man after God's own heart to letting sin and brokenness envelop him. And his posture had come, you have no place to tell me I'm wrong. To a posture that completely changed in Psalm 51. He says, have mercy on me, O God. According to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. What he's saying is, I can see, God, that my hands are dirty. I can see, God, that I have sinned and I've sinned before you. He says, against you and only you, I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you, God, may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. God, it's not you that has the problem, it's me. And I'm falling at your feet under the weight of my sin and my issues and my brokenness. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have broken rejoice. So when I humble myself and I realize what my hands are presenting before God, and it leads me into that wretched state, then God exalts us, what James says. And he says, let, David said, let me hear joy and gladness. Let that come from you, not what I manufacture. Hide your face from my sins and blot out my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. That that changes our posture before God. And we realize what's on our hands, and we open them up to God and say, forgive me, cleanse me. Where my joy has turned to mourning, God, now may you restore the joy of salvation and you produce that spirit in me to sustain me. Let me experience the revelation of your forgiveness, your salvation, your goodness, and your mercy, and let that mountaintop experience sustain me in the valley. I'm gonna pray for us, and one of the things that God loves is when we pray his word back to him. And so to close this out today, I felt the most fitting way for us to pray is to pray God's word over us. 
And, and positionally, you're in a place to hear God. You're in a place where, the, where God is moving and his presence is here. And what I want you to do as you're comfortable, I want you to change your posture for this prayer. If you need to take a knee, take a knee. If you need to bow on your chair, bow on your chair. If you want to stand, raise your hands, or just close your eyes and bow your head. However you feel like you need to posture yourself for this prayer, I want you to change your posture for this prayer. So let's close our eyes, and I'm going to pray this scripture. This is Ephesians chapter 1. This is what Paul prayed over the church at Ephesus that I am going to pray over us. O God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, give us the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of you. Enlighten our hearts, God, that we may know the hope that you have called us to, that we may know the riches of your glorious inheritance, that we may know the immeasurable greatness of your power toward us who believe according to the working of your great might and power that you worked in Jesus when you raised him from the dead and you seated him at your right hand in the heavenly places, in those places that are far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, God, but in the age to come. And you, O Lord, put all things under the feet of Jesus and gave him as the head over all things to the church, which is us, your body, so that we may have the fullness of Christ fill us all in all. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from the Creek Church. We invite you to listen to other messages on this podcast, or if you have any questions, you can email us at info at thecreekfw.com.